It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Mehdi Hassan. The polls suggest Joe Biden is on course for victory in November. But if he does win, is Donald Trump really going to leave without a fight? I think we need to have these conversations ahead of time, which can help inoculate against all that stuff Donald Trump will say, potentially starting November 3rd, November 4th, and and for weeks to come. That's my guest today, Joshua Geltzer, Georgetown law professor and former member of President Obama's National Security Council. So how worried should we be that Trump won't accept the result, that he won't leave without violence or chaos? Is democracy itself really on the ballot this November? Picture the scene. It's the morning of November 4th, 2020, the morning after the election, and it's become clear that Donald J. Trump has lost both in the Electoral College and in the popular vote to the Democratic candidate Joe Biden. The president, however, rather than calling his Democratic opponent to concede, holds a rally with his supporters at which he declares himself the winner of the election and tells the crowd not to believe what they're seeing or hearing in the news because it's fake news. And he tells them that the election was rigged. It was a deep state coup. Millions and millions of people voted illegally for the Democrats using fake mail-in ballots. He tells them to take to the streets because their Second Amendment rights are at stake. Picture that scene. It's a scene I first wrote about back in March 2019 in a column for The Intercept headlined, Yes, let's defeat or impeach Donald Trump. But what if he refuses to leave the White House? I concluded that piece saying, and I quote, this is not a drill and there is no reason to believe Trump will go quietly if he's defeated. There is every reason, however, to believe he and his allies will incite hysteria and even violence. Those who assume otherwise haven't been paying attention, end quote. Now, a lot of people at the time thought that was hyperbole, that I was exaggerating the risk, the threat. They poo-pooed the scenario that I outlined there. This doesn't happen in America. We have checks and balances. Yeah, American exceptionalism. Hubris, more like it. So what prompted me to write that piece then? Well, at the time, two things. Number one, One of Trump's closest confidants, his former personal lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, had just told Congress. Given my experience working for Mr. Trump, I fear that if he loses the election in 2020, that there will never be a peaceful transition of power. And number two, Trump himself made it clear in 2016 he wouldn't accept the election result. So why would it be any different in 2020? In fact, even after winning in 2016, he'd publicly and falsely claimed that Hillary Clinton had only got more votes than him because, quote, illegals voted for her. This man is a bad winner. Of course, he's going to be a bad loser. Over the past 18 months, thankfully, more and more people have come round to my way of thinking. Now, it's almost conventional wisdom that Trump won't accept the result. 
that there's a risk of violence even. In fact, the former head of the National Counterterrorism Center said just this month that he would not be surprised if far-right domestic terrorist groups launch attacks across the US, quote, particularly if the administration loses. People can no longer deny that this is where we're headed because Trump keeps telling us this is where we're headed. Asked by Fox News's Chris Wallace whether he'd accept the election result, he refused to say yes. Can you give a direct answer? You will accept the election? I have to see. Look, you, I have to see. No, I'm not going to just say yes. I'm not going to say no. And I didn't last time either. At a recent rally, the narcissist-in-chief said he would not accept as legitimate any election result that didn't show him as the winner. The only way we're going to lose this election is if the election is rigged. Remember that. It's the only way we're going to lose this election. And let's not forget his dangerous, dangerous tweets earlier this year. Liberate Minnesota, liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia, and save your great Second Amendment. It's under siege, he tweeted. Tweets that were welcomed by both far-right extremists online and armed right-wing militias on the streets of Michigan, Virginia, and beyond. So, what happens if November sees Trump refusing to concede, contesting the results, urging violence? urging an uprising by his cultish and armed followers. Are the Democrats ready for that? Is Joe Biden? Is the media? Are we ready? Who better to ask about all of this than my guest today, Joshua Geltzer, who is a visiting law professor at Georgetown University and was a senior director for counterterrorism at the National Security Council during President Obama's second term. Now, I may have been one of the first people in the US media to write about this subject back in March 2019, but he beat even me. In February 2019, he penned an op-ed for the CNN website headlined, What if Trump refuses to accept defeat in 2020? And he joins me now from his home in Washington, D.C. Joshua Geltzer, thanks for coming on Deconstructed. Thanks for the invitation. You wrote your piece in February 2019. I wrote a very similar piece a month later, March 2019, making the same warning, what happens if Trump won't go? It's been 18 months since then. More and more people, politicians, pundits, voters, are now warning about a scenario where Trump refuses to go. Why do you think it took so long for so many people to recognize the clear and present danger here? Why was it dismissed out of hand a year and a half ago? I remember people poo-pooed me when I wrote my column for The Intercept. But now it's the subject of much ongoing debate, much hand-wringing. I think this is the Trump dynamic that we've seen, where he says something so outrageous, first as a candidate, then as president, that initially the reaction of people, almost understandably, is to say, He can't actually do that. He can't actually deliver on that promise. He can't actually mean what he says. But then when he does, it takes people aback. They're caught unsure how to respond because he's actually gone and done it. And that was my goal. I suspect it was your goal in providing this warning, which is we need to accept that this is a possibility so that we can be ahead of him for once. Yes. And one of the reasons I wrote my piece was Michael Cohen, his then, uh, well, at the time, former lawyer, but had just been his lawyer until very recently at that time, had gone in front of Congress and said, I don't think there'll be a peaceful transfer of power. He's not the kind of guy who's going to do it. And I kept, I remember I remember the 2016 result and, you know, the guy won and still complained about illegal voters and being stolen. He was a bad winner. Of course, he's going to be a bad loser. Um, there's no debate about it. Let's look at the personality of this man that we're learning more and more about, thanks to even family members now in recent days. Um, what's interesting, Josh, is it in, 
in recent days, uh, people are even going further than you and I did a year and a half ago in terms of dire warnings. You now have very serious people warning of major violence. The former head of the National Counterterrorism Center, Russ Travers, uh, said the other week that he wouldn't be surprised if far-right domestic terrorist groups launch attacks around the country if Trump loses. I mean, you and I didn't go that far. No, we didn't. But uh, someone like Russ, with whom I worked closely when I was in government, he, he is not prone to, to hyperventilating, but he is putting together, I think, some strands of the Trump presidency and, and Trump's rhetoric. In particular, he's taking not only what you and I focused on, the idea of refusing to accept the legitimacy of any election in which he loses, but also this at times tacit, at times rather explicit encouragement, acceptance, exhortation even of private militia groups. Now, Trump hasn't said to do exactly what Russ and apparently others who are still in government are worrying about, but he's accepted that they might provide security for him at campaign events. He hasn't denounced them going all the way back to Charlottesville, of course, in August 2017. So it's those strands that come together in at least potentially worrisome ways that require us to get ahead of it rather than to find ourselves in undesirable, rather frightening circumstances. Yeah. And we've even seen him embrace QAnon, which which the FBI considers to be a potential domestic uh, radicalization, domestic extremist group, um, which has also been behind acts of violence. And even if you go beyond terror attacks, we do know that Trump supporters, armed Trump supporters, will take to the streets if he tells them to. That's not a guess. They've done it already. In Michigan, we saw uh, right-wing militias turn up at the State House earlier this year as part of the anti-lockdown protests, burning effigies of Democratic governors. Was that all a warm-up, do you think, for November? It at least feels like it could be. It feels like it could be a warm-up from groups that go into this election cycle thinking that the system is somehow rigged, in part, of course, because Donald Trump told them way back in 2016 that they should see it as rigged until he kind of dropped that language once he won. But Although, although he said the other day, I should just remind our listeners, he said the other day, the only way I lose is if it's rigged. So he's made it very clear he's not accepting the result. Right. That's the, the sort of resuscitation of, of, a, of a claim that was that was hard to resuscitate once, in fact, he won. And yet Trump has found a way to keep alive yes. the notion that the system is stacked against him. That's how he that's how he fra- uh, phrases the Flynn matter. That's how he phrases Mueller's investigation. He somehow manages to take these pieces and use them to keep alive the notion that he's the one being treated unfairly, when in fact, to the chagrin of some of us, he nonetheless emerged the victor in the system as we have it in 2016. And he's re-injecting that now as 2020 approaches. So we have these warnings coming out, more and more people worried about this scenario. And yet overall, despite, you know, Nancy Pelosi's coming out saying we need to win big in order to avoid this happening. Uh, We've heard Facebook say recently they're going to crack down on misinformation about the result uh, or about Trump falsely claiming victory on the night. There's been books published on this topic of whether he'll go quietly. But I still feel, Josh, overall, big picture, politicians and journalists, neither of them are prepared really fully 
early for what could be coming down the track. Do you think enough preparations have been made, for example? I can speak as a journalist. I look at my colleagues in the media and I do not think enough preparations have been made for what happens on election night. What are the anchors going to be saying? How are the newspapers going to be framing it if Trump does not accept the result or if he claims victory when all the votes aren't in? Do you think people in your world, in the national security world, in the government bureaucracy, um, on the Democratic side, have taken it seriously enough? I'll say a couple of positive things and then a couple of things I'm okay. still concerned about. Here's where I'm positive. I, I, I think some of your, your colleagues in the media have begun to help the public understand some important things. Those include the idea that there is nothing illegitimate about not knowing the results on election night, that ballots still may need to be counted, that potentially there will even be court cases. That's a peaceful way to resolve things. That's okay. It happened in 2000. It was unsettling, but ultimately it was, of course, peaceful, that there are ways in which we might not know the night of, and that is just fine. That's not a rigged election. That's not illegitimate. And explaining not only that as a notion, but in particular, what some of those steps could be after election day, but before January 20, I think there are at least some, some signs that that, that that is infiltrating the public discussion in, in a helpful way. But I'm also still concerned. And some of those steps that I urged in the, in the piece early last year that, that you were nice enough to reference earlier, I, I wish there was more action being taken on them. The idea that governors who are not up for re-election could all commit to honoring the results of the presidential election, regardless of what those results are. The idea that members of, of Congress who are not up for, re, for re-election on, on the Senate side, or even those who are up, uh, could commit to approaching their duty on January 6th of holding a joint session and certifying results and not being deterred by a single candidate's claim of illegitimacy. Uh, there's still time to take those steps, but they haven't been taken yet, unfortunately. Josh, you mentioned a moment ago the governors and the role that they can play. And in your original CNN piece, I think there were four groups, four actors where pressure could be brought to bear in your view. Um, The Electoral College, Congress, the governors and the military. I wonder if you have confidence in all of those actors 18 months later. I mean, Congress remains a partisan dysfunctional joke. And as for the military, we just saw a few weeks ago the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, disgrace himself by going in full combat fatigues on a walkabout with President Trump around Lafayette Square after Trump had cleared it out with tear gas. So that scene was horrifying, I think, to, to many across America. And as people talk about that and, and other recent disturbing developments as something of a test run for, for how Trump might behave in November, I guess I, as an optimist, hope that it's also a lesson learned because Chairman Milley came out afterwards and released a video that he knew would be public, and in particular, he knew Donald Trump would see, in which he said he'd made a mistake. Now, it's better to know something is, yeah. is a mistake before you do it rather than after, but at least realizing it after yes. is better than not realizing it at all. And for him to have realized that what he did there as, as someone in uniform with others in uniform was inappropriate, was contrary to the norms and ideals of, of American democracy and, and civilian military relations, the idea that that was a test run from which he learned before November, that's what the optimist in me wants to take away from that. Okay. And in your list of groups, you didn't mention the courts, 
as playing a potential role. Is that because you believe they're so stuffed with Trump appointees and so partisan, including the Supreme Court, that the US judiciary can no longer be relied upon to prevent or adjudicate a potential constitutional crisis of this magnitude? I mean, not just no longer. Back in 2000, many would argue it was a biased Supreme Court that helped uh, Bush defeat Gore. So I, I'm not a fan of the Bush v. Gore decision, and I'm, I'm not a fan of, of every decision I see from the federal courts, but I still see them as a place where peaceful resolution, appropriate resolution of disputes, including electoral disputes, can play out. I, I didn't mention them in, in the piece, in part because I was trying to identify actors who could act now, who in advance could make certain commitments, certain pledges that would help ensure a peaceful transfer of power. Courts, of course, tend to work when there's a concrete case or controversy upon them. And I think they will find, at least some of them around the country, that they're asked to do just that. But if they do it consistent with the way our courts operate in, in channeling what otherwise could be hard to resolve disputes into peaceful adjudication, I think that's still an important role. I also yeah. think there are things states can do to try to avoid, for example, the Bush v. Gore problem. And we could, we could talk about Bush v. Gore at length, but real quickly, part of the problem there was that it wasn't wholly clear exactly what the different pieces of the Florida system thought should happen in terms of ballot counting if it wasn't resolved past a certain date on the calendar. Yeah. Dates could make that totally clear, unmistakably clear today before we get to November, and that would leave less wiggle room for a Supreme Court or, frankly, even a lower federal court to come along and make the sort of decision that many of us thought was a mistake back in 2000. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So you're not just a former senior government official. You're also a law professor at Georgetown. Just legally and constitutionally, just to be clear... What we're worried about here is the period between November 3rd, 2020, Election Day, and January 20th, 2021, the inauguration of a new president, right? There's no chance. Is there that a defeated Trump could hold on to office past January 20th? Or could he if there's shenanigans or dirty tricks when it comes to certifying electoral college results, for example, in December? What's the process? So the, the Constitution is clear that on January 20, the term of a current president ends. And it's also clear that if there isn't someone who whose votes have been certified by Congress as the new president, then the line of succession kicks in, which means if there has been such a, a deadlocked Congress, for example, that they don't certify the right results or they don't reach the necessary thresholds, 
it actually moves past the president and vice president, whose term will end one way or another at noon on yeah. January 20, and go to the next person, who happens to be the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. So if you reach that point, it's not clear that that's an outcome Donald Trump loves. Well, Republicans in Congress love, and they might put pressure on him to avoid that. Although I read somewhere that it's not Nancy Pelosi because she won't be because conf- it would be the Senate pro temper, Chuck Grassley. So I, just, I saw someone claiming that, and I don't. I just that's a it is an extreme hypothetical. I think what you may have seen was some people who said, "Look, if there really were no federal elections held at all." which is something to okay. be totally clear that Donald Trump does not have the power unilaterally yes, to yes, do. Yes, okay, yes. But we're, then, we're mixing yes, up the different constitutional crises that tr- Donald Trump has broached here. Fair they're enough. coming at us too quickly to keep okay, track so, of. Yeah, in, the, in the scenario, yeah, in the scenario where there's no elections, and yes, Pelosi wouldn't be in Congress either, that's not on the table. But in the scenario where Trump is contesting the result, suggesting that he's the president, has some electors in the Electoral College who switched to him uh, on partisan terms, then Pelosi would be president on January 21st. That's right. But as as you pointed out before, there is a process. It's a surprisingly convoluted process that unfolds before we ever get to that point that would hopefully head it off. And, And zooming out here, you go from the states to the meeting of the Electoral College, but the really crucial step occurs on January 6th when the new Congress, yeah. presided over, as it were, by, by Mike Pence at, at this point, uh, certifies results. And it has happened in our nation's history that states have had competing slates of electors that different actors yeah. in the states have sent. There's a process, there's even a statute that specifies how Congress debates and resolves that sort of contest. They break into the House and Senate, they come back together. And ultimately, even if there are really hard questions, really tense questions, there's still a process for sorting that out before we get to a January 20 that is a nightmare scenario. But there has never been a contested election result in U.S. history, has there? Well, there, I mean, there have been uh, times where Congress has played the, the role you and I are talking about with, uh, w- with a lot of argument and contestation. So uh, uh, listeners may be familiar with the, the epic drama that Alexander Hamilton played some role in, maybe not quite as much yes. as, as the musical yes. suggests, but some role in resolving where you had basically um, a tie, ballot after ballot in Congress, you had a tie uh, un- until an abstention actually broke that tie. You even had, in a much later election, a commission set up with some Supreme Court justices as part of it to try to resolve a contested election that was later in the 19th century. You had, at one point, uh, Richard Nixon, actually, ha- he was vice president. He was outgoing because he had lost to John Kennedy having to preside over a session in which he allowed a slate of electors to go against him. It wasn't determinative. But to be fair to Nixon, uh, he did go out of his way to say, I accept the result, even though there were dirty tricks on the Democratic side. And our country is all about peaceful transfer of power. Even Nixon was able to say something that Trump isn't. What's interesting as a Brit watching all of this here in the US is, as you know, in the UK, election day, the prime minister leaves the following morning, the moving van is in Downing Street ready to go. The problem you have is that you have this weird, uh, you know, nearly three-month period where Trump is still the president and can cause a lot of damage just from the bully pulpit. People say, oh, Secret Service will get rid of him on January 20th. But it's the, it's the period before January 20th where so much constitutional chaos can happen and where so much violence, God forbid, could happen. Isn't the problem here, Josh, there's a kind of 
kind of arrogant US exceptionalism at play here. This idea which has been around in some liberal, even centrist circles since before 2016 even, that Trump cannot do long-term or major damage to the US because the US isn't some developing country, some banana republic. It has strong institutions. It has strong democratic norms. What happens in other countries can't happen here. That was the mindset for a lot of people until very recently. I think there's something to that. And I think that's where having conversations like the one you and I are having right now, where we take something that frankly appeared unthinkable 10 years ago, 20 years ago, even as polarized as American politics was then, felt then, but still seemed unthinkable. And now we think about it because Donald Trump has forced us to think about it. And then we take the next step of trying to figure out the actors who who can try to take Trump's abnormal rhetoric, abnormal approach to such things and sideline it and get us back to where normal is. I I think that's why we need to have these conversations ahead of time and why the public education function, which can help inoculate against that, all those tweets, all that stuff Donald Trump will say, potentially starting November 3rd, November 4th, and, and for weeks to come, I think that's critical ahead of time. So last question then on that note, just throwing forward, if we manage to dodge this bullet, if Biden wins so clearly that it's not even an issue, uh, if he takes office with a unified government, with a Democrat-controlled Senate and House too, are there steps that he and his party can take, in your view, to fix things, to reform the way elections are run, results are counted, uh, slates are approved, to prevent such a scary potential scenario from ever being on the horizon again in the future? I think the answer to that is is yes and no. I, I think there are things that, that can be done from abolishing the, the outdated electoral college, which in some ways oh, got yes. us into this whole mess in, in, the, in the first place, to clarifying statutes like the Electoral Count Act, the one I mentioned before that, that Congress used to specify how it should resolve certain election disputes, but is in fact very, very hard to read and, and interpret. So yes, they could do some cleanup there. And at the same time, I don't want to succumb to the the hubris, the American exceptionalism you rightly mentioned a few minutes ago, in which at some level, this is about human beings and the choices they make and their willingness to abide by a a system of rules and a system of law. And I think we both need to shore up our laws where we can, but we also need to use this Trump experience as a reminder that there are those who will come along and try, potentially, to break our systems, our institutions, our norms. And we need to stay eyes wide open and aware and and resist that when it happens. Joshua Geltzer, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us on Deconstructed. Thanks for your insights. Thank you. That was Joshua Geltzer, law professor and former member of Barack Obama's National Security Council, sounding the alarm bell, but also uh, sending a signal of hope what still can be done to prevent an absolute uh, disaster come Election Day and beyond. However, since we recorded that interview, uh, Donald Trump said this on Wednesday. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer? Pearl of power after the election. Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I and, understand that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit uh, to making sure that there's a no, peaceful wanna, transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. You know it. And you know who knows it better okay. than anybody else? The Democrats know it better than anybody else. Go ahead. The President of the United States 
uh, refusing, unlike his 44 predecessors, to guarantee a peaceful transition of power and suggesting uh, he's going to win if you get rid of all the votes that go to the Democrats. Uh, I'm joined now to discuss this latest aspect of the crisis that we are already in uh, by The Intercept's DC bureau chief, friend of the show, uh, who's been hosting the show in recent weeks while I've been away, Ryan Grimm. Ryan, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me here, Maddie. Um, Ryan, when you listen, you've been covering presidents and American politics for many, many years now. Not that I'm saying you're old, but <laughs> when you listen to a president say that in the White House to a reporter 40, 41 days out from an election, uh, it's chilling, isn't it? It, it? it really was. And far beyond his refusal to promise this peaceful transition was the part that you highlighted where he said, well, look, you know, the, I have this problem with the ballots. You know, you get rid of the ballots. You're not even going to need to have a transition. Because I'm just staying in office. And, you know, you could have the Washington Post fact checker dig into that statement and you'd say, yes, <laughs> no, no Pinocchios. If you do away with the election, then yes, the dictator <laughs> stays in office. But to have him uh, so brazenly put that out there is certainly unlike you know, anything we've seen in, you know, 200 plus years. Yes, the Republicans have uh, perfected the art of voter suppression for many years now. But this is the first time I've heard a, a sitting president from the Republican Party say, just don't count lots of votes. Those <laughs> votes don't count. Um, and uh, it's going to be a real problem because on election night, he might be leading. Uh, of course, when the rest of the votes come in, he won't be leading. And that is the, the crisis we're in right now, which I've been trying to sound an alarm bell about for 18 months now. Um, Joshua Geltzer was very strong on it earlier in the show. Bernie Sanders this week also gave a speech saying this is a nightmare scenario. Democrats need to take it seriously. Do you think the Democrats have what it takes to kind of really be ready for this and fight back if he tries to steal the result? As he says, he will. It, it depends on what you mean by Democrats. If, if you mean some of the Democratic leaders in Washington, probably not. But if you mean... The party's presidential candidate? The candidate presidential himself, candidate, Mr. No, Biden? No, but, but if you mean kind of Democrats nationally, then I think you are going to see a furious response. And I, I think the protests we saw in, in June and kind of in, in the wake of George Floyd's murder uh, were partly related to a general anger at the system more broadly. And that system includes, you know, people who are stuck at home and angry, but also angry at Donald Trump, angry at all of the kind of racial and gender inequities that he has exacerbated. And he's become a focal point for a lot of that fury. And so I, I do think that Democrats across the country will take to the street if they believe that he's trying to steal the election. Now, the way to prevent that, of course, is, is a landslide Biden win. But absent that, uh, I, I think the answer to the question is Democrats themselves might be ready for it. Democratic leaders might not be. Crazy times ahead, uh, a crazy election coming. It is a very, very, you know, there's that old Chinese curse, which isn't really a Chinese curse. It says, may you live in interesting times. Uh, we definitely do live in interesting and, and in many ways depressing times. <laughs> Ryan, thanks so much for joining me on Deconstructed. Well, thank you for having me. That's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever. And if you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps new people find the show. 
And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.